let the hogs out. Welcome to Hog Planet, the podcast where we weigh, tag, and grade the various hogs of culture, of uh, political life, of uh, America, really. And uh, today uh, we have uh, a, you know, another edition of our Nights at the Quarren Cinema series. Uh, you know, Sam. Uh, I'm Dan Spaventa, and joined by Sam Lewis. Uh, Sam, why, why did we choose uh, Die Hard for this week? Well, Die Hard as a movie just, I, I don't know, I think as an action film it just totally kicks ass. But I think these days there's been this big reevaluation of copaganda, a buzzword that's been thrown around a lot lately, uh, definitely in the wake of the uprisings against police brutality. So... And it, I think that it it runs deep in a lot of action movies, definitely, but just in a lot of movies in general, uh, especially blockbuster American movies. And sometimes it's it's a little more nuanced. I think in Die Hard, there maybe is an attempt to inject nuance into the glorification of the police that we definitely see within the movie. But I I think it's not always direct, and it's worth unpacking the... I guess kind of the, th- the through lines and the mindset that movies like this have where, um, I mean, within Die Hard, John McClane definitely comes up against a lot of bad cops who aren't doing their jobs well. But there is, of course, this underscoring of the idea that there are good cops out there. Of course, John McClane being one of those cops who's not afraid to get his hands dirty. So I think it's worth unpacking with uh, people who know a thing or two about the topic. So we have uh, joining us once again, returning champion. Uh, he was here on our episode about Loquisha, a infamous episode. An infamous episode. Uh, we have Matt Greenberg. Matt, how are you? I'm good. How's it going, guys? Oh, I'm you know, here to talk uh, about a movie of similar quality to Loquisha. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, it didn't have any rendering errors in Die Hard. No, unfortunately, no. Um, I will say, though, Die Hard is one of my favorite movies from just, you know, it's just been like such a Christmas staple and like just like one of the top tier action movies for me. So I think if you made a spectrum of cinema, I think it would be Die Hard for me, Die Hard on one end and Loquisha on the other end. I think it's fair. So we're giving you an easier task. I'm glad you mentioned that it's one of your favorite Christmas movies because that's such a, like a that's such like a Reddit joke. I feel like these days, like, oh, did you know that Die Hard's actually a Christmas movie? It's like, yeah, they mention it like every ten minutes in the fucking film. It's a huge part of it. <laughs> the closing music is. I mean, yeah. you don't get more Christmas than that. It's like, like I could maybe argue, like, oh, Lethal Weapon is or isn't a Christmas movie, but Die Hard, flat out, it is one. And a lot of the point of the movie too. I mean, we'll get into this i'm sure but the whole kind of attack on decadence that this movie presents i feel like with so much of that christmas element almost makes it like borderline satirical at that point no definitely so uh again uh this is hog planet sam uh this this i, I was watching this like this is a hog movie for many reasons absolutely uh 80s kind of you know decadent action movie uh tropes were in there but it, it didn't you know, I'd never, okay, I have to say, I'd never seen the entire movie. 
So this was kind of an interesting journey for me. Uh, I'm sure both of you have uh, experienced this story before, so it might have been different for you. But um, yeah, it, it's a hog movie, Sam. Why, why would you say? So definitely John McClane specifically is meets the definition of a hog as we've set it out. Um, I mean, just right off the bat, we find out that more or less his wife has left him <laughs> I changed her I last name but yeah. she still kind of wants him classic late 80s 90s archetype of stern semi-divorced guy like he's not fully divorced like the wife is still in the picture yes uh, and she's still obviously you know one of the conceits of the film is that he's going to get her back so she still kind of wants him which is very much in the hog mindset, uh, especially for like hetero men in this country, um, is even if they are separated, you know, she still would take me back if I asked. So like, like in the in the beginning in the limo when he's getting he's taking the limo to the the um, Nakatomi building and she's saying and uh, he's telling Argyle the limo driver that he's like I'm gonna get in that <laughs> spare bedroom in her house in, mm. in L.A. I want to also comment that, uh, you know, John McClane obviously uh, is Bruce Willis uh, in the part. Um, I, I, I'm always unsettled by Bruce Willis when he has hair. I mean, this is pretty early on in his <laughs> acting career, I would say. I mean, he had that show Moonlighting, I think it was called, which was like more of like a comedy. And they kind of cast him off of that because they wanted someone who's kind of like a smart ass, but also can be kind of vulnerable, too. And I think... I mean, it's a little on the nose with him, like, having to win back his wife and all that. But I think there are some elements to that that are really interesting, like how he plays this character as kind of, like, on the seat of his pants the whole time rather than, like, this macho. I mean, they even name drop, like, Rambo. Like, he's the anti-Rambo in a way throughout this movie. Yeah, he's he's famously not wearing shoes through the whole movie. He's uh, a smart alecky kind of jer like he's supposed to be a New York cop, but uh, Bruce Willis specifically is from New Jersey. He's a Jersey boy, um, even though I think he was born in like a military base in Germany or something. But the you know raised born in, more or less raised in Jersey. But um, back to the hog thing, he's he's definitely also a cop who does police brutality. Um, and the the other cops, I mean. Cops number one are pigs, so meets the the hog standard already. But um, the other cops are definitely also absolute hogs. I, I think we see a lot of police incompetence in this movie, even though we also see the you know how good police can be in the example of uh, McLean and also Sergeant Powell. But um, I don't know. And, and just continuing with like some of his hog stuff, he definitely doesn't follow the rules, which is serious hog behavior, thinking you're above the rules. Um, Hans at one point, Hans Gruber calls him, you know, the antagonist calls him just another American who saw too many movies as a child, which is a little too perfect. So let's get a, let's get a little plot summary going here. Um, we start out and, uh, you know, uh, Bruce Willis, John McClane is on a plane and this guy is like trying to be buddy, buddy with him. And then he uh, shows him his gun and he's like, it's okay. I'm a cop. I think notably, though, about that scene, like, the first shot of your action hero, who you're going to see as, like, this badass gun-toting, like, you know, able to take down a team of terrorists, right? The first shot of the movie is him gripping his armrests in fear of being on a plane. I think that's really funny, just, like, the vulnerability right up front with this movie. Also, considering how much he's faced in the movie with his, uh, you know, with heights, with his, yeah. he's constantly, like, dangling... 
just jumping off an exploding building like nothing. With a fire hose as his, like, um, what, like, parachute? That's not even what a parachute is. Um, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> that, is a, that is a good element, though. There is, like, a lot of actual characterization and, like, Obviously, a lot of the the quotes and the dialogue from this are super memorable and stick in people's minds. And even though it is like an action film, I think also to a degree the writing and the um, the kind of film craft, like the foreshadowing of uh, being afraid of heights or whatever, um, definitely like elevates this to beyond the level of like a, you know a lesser action film in my mind. Yeah, I've seen this movie a dozen times, so this time I wanted to watch it with director's commentary. It's him, John McTiernan, the director, and then I think it was the production designer. And this movie is so engrossing that I forgot I was watching it with a commentary and just got sucked into the movie with subtitles on. But it was really insightful to just kind of hear like their, like how they really wanted to get the geography down early on in the movie so that you kind of know your place, know what, you know, Bruce Willis can and can't work with in a certain moment in, in, you know, what part of the building he's in. I thought it was really interesting. And it kind of like puts the viewer at an advantage over some of the other characters in the movie in terms of like, they know that he knows where he is or he doesn't know where he is. And it creates a lot of suspense that way. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. There's so much suspense uh, also just through the, I don't know, the cinematography, the way like uh, the, the, the villains, like the, uh, the, the crew of, uh, you know, thugs are um you know a shot i think it's uh it's a lot of like silhouettes and stuff it's kind of interesting uh, oh so starts out john is clearly in the doghouse with his wife uh, he's going to visit her in la uh he uh being a completely selfish person had to just stay in new york to be a cop even though she got a really important job in la so they're separated but he's now visiting la for christmas um, did you get the sense that John was set up here to be kind of an anti-hero or something like that? They kind of give him the background of like, oh, he is a cop. He is from New York. But that's other than that, really, that's all you kind of have to go on. And you kind of in your head, you kind of have the connotations of what what that means throughout the movie. Otherwise, he doesn't really have a lot to work with towards the beginning of the movie. It's only towards the end when he starts giving those monologues about, you know, wanting to be with Holly and saying like, you know, I said, I love you a thousand times, but I never said, I'm sorry. That's really when you get to the meat of who he is outside of, I'm just a guy who's separated from his wife, who also happens to be a police officer. Yeah. That, that line was serious hog, uh, hog dialogue. <laughs> in that. I've never said, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Very Joe Biden <laughs> behavior, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I get the sense from the beginning that you're, Whenever it's set up like there's a man going to visit his wife, he flew across the country on Christmas for her. We're sort of expecting like a miracle to happen. We're sort of expecting uh, them to get back together, even just from that basic setup. So it kind of just starts off the characterization right from the get go. I definitely thought of Con Air for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) The ultimate plane movie, I think. True, true. Um it really kind of moves from there. I mean, it doesn't take too long till he's, you know, driven in a limo by what's the guy's name? Argyle. Like Daffodil Argyle. Yeah. No, his name is Argyle. And uh, I don't know if you guys got this read, but Bruce, Will- oh, I'm sorry, John McClane doesn't seem to like <laughs> Argyle at all. <laughs> like he seems to, 
Um, he hates like his like Argyle puts on like you know 90s rap music, and um, he's like, it's my first day on the job and stuff. And like, I don't know, McLean is just kind of giving him looks the whole time, which I mean, you know, checks out for New York City police officer, obviously. Uh, some low key racism there, but I love. Um, I love Argyle, how he just kind of comes back at the end and saves the day for like five seconds. But otherwise, he's completely useless to the movie. He's just kind of there to add a little character to it. Yeah, he's kind of a comic relief as well, I would say. And John uh, is dropped off by Argyle in the limo uh, at, what's the company's, what's the company name? The Nakatomi Plaza. I only know because I'm wearing a t-shirt with the logo on it right now. There we go. Real fandom going on in this podcast right now. Yeah, that was one of those, like, I got a, for my birthday, someone gave me a, um, some kind of coupon to a graphic tee website, and I went for it. I was like, I like this movie, I'll wear this to sleep, whatever. No, that's awesome. Although I will admit, I also do have a John McClane pop vinyl on hand right now. Yeah. (laughs) It. You came prepared, if which you we have appreciate. It, now would be the time to wear it and, uh, you know, have oh, of course, yeah. the figure out. Um, yeah, to quote Sergeant Powell, what, light him if you got him. <laughs> um, but no, I, the Nakatomi Corporation. Um, what, what do they do? What, what, what's that all about? They do like, it seems like bridge design. And then like one scene, they have like a model bridge. Of, I don't know, just like heavy engineering corporation they're 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 ceos of the business corporation over at nakatomi it's clearly like a japanese company which is directly alluded to a couple times but um the the, i love the design of the skyscraper and like the sets within the skyscraper it's kind of like the platonic ideal of what i thought going to you know the high corporate (laughs) world like the 80s looked like yeah that was the greed is good era you know that was when you know it was it was cool to be uh you know a, a corporate america asshole like uh, that one character that we meet, uh, Ellis, right? Or... Ellis, that's the name. Yeah, I lo- one of my favorite yeah. details of the movie has to be, and then I want to get into a quote. But one of my favorite details is that uh, towards the end of the movie, when he's negotiating with Hans Gruber's team, uh, someone hands him a can of Coke as if off-screen he had asked for Coke. <laughs> Absolutely love that. But going off the kind of the decadence yeah, of detail. kind of the corporation, uh, this quote from the commentary that I really thought kind of tied a lot together. Uh, I just want to make sure I get this right. It's that the movie is deconstructing the proudest accomplishments of our corporate civilization. I mean, literally they blow up a corporate building. Like that's the whole, by the end of the movie, that building is toast. And I feel like it speaks a lot to the kind of destruction of decadence throughout the movie. I mean, there's, you know, the whole Christmas theme of it, but also like the little details, like, Hans Gruber's ultimately defeated by the destruction of a Rolex, like things like that. Oh, yeah. I think it's really interesting. It, it is, I, I, yeah, I'm getting a sort of like Verhoeven anti-capitalist sort of feeling from it or something. Um, I, before we were talking, I was I asked Matt if he thought it was almost a Starship Troopers effect uh, in this movie, where uh, it's easy to misinterpret it as just like being, uh, you know completely uh on the side of every one of the characters or something so matt could you just tell me the response you said before i don't think it's as on the nose as something like starship troopers but um i do think there are a lot of little details that kind of play into that especially kind of creating the dichotomy between john mcclain and the lapd i mean the lapd in this movie are given tons of toys and they end up just 
killing their men in the process using helicopters and all these SWAT teams. And I, I don't know, there's a lot to John McClane that I feel like um, kind of simplifies him away from that whole corporate atmosphere. I mean, you don't get enough of it really to kind of go off of in terms of what his life is like at home. That kind of comes in the later movies a little bit. But I mean, one detail, for example, like when he's in the limo in the beginning, since we're kind of there in the story, um, he sits in the front. Like he doesn't take the back. He kind of like pals with Argyle in the front and doesn't really, you know, he's not one for all this kind of decadence of the corporate world. He kind of just is walking into it somewhat blind to it. And I wonder, you know, his arc with Holly, like how much did they argue about, you know, her kind of selling out, quote unquote, to that kind of world? That is also like checks out with just um, the Gen X, uh, I like obsession with selling out. But I, I find with like the that that cultural uh, that cultural concept, uh, especially among Gen Xers, and this is definitely a Gen X movie. Um, that concept is not well fleshed out because I don't know what they would what the opposite of selling out is for a uh, for a Gen Xer. Is it like John McClane being you know? I assume that his wife, who is like the director of corporate affairs at this like massive corporation, is much more well paid than he is as like a New York City cop. Um, like I, I, I that's not something I've never understood about that concept is like what is because you know for okay so for like the the current day we would say the opposite of selling out would be like building something collective or collaborative that doesn't um, exalt money as the only option for success. But back then it's not like they were, you know, it's not like he's, he wants like a workers movement or anything. That's definitely what, not what he's saying or what his attitude is, but he does just have this generalized antipathy towards the concept of selling out or luxury at least. So to uh, move forward in the plot a little bit, the, uh, you know, the criminals, the gang, and, and where are they from? The, these people are they dutch or are they german i think they're german from germany or there's i think they were in the movie i think they're speaking like a fake german but i think the implication is that they're from that sort of area of the world so they infiltrate the building by just you know murking the guards just blasting the guards away like real quick and you know they have uh i don't know this character's name but the, t the tech guy i think his name is theo 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 um he kind of just instantly like uh hacks the security system so clearly this has been a well-planned uh you know event here that's um, a yeah that's a huge thing is that they're so prepared every single moment of this movie to the point where like even when hans is very clearly losing at the end of this movie he's like i still i can still do this i'm an excellent thief etc but they're so meticulously ready for this event as opposed to the LAPD who have no idea what they're doing. They're playing by the book and it's getting them screwed over. So I feel like that kind of contrast is really interesting, especially having John McClane be kind of like as prepared as Gruber's team, but also kind of thinking on his feet a bit too, like the LAPD. It's kind of right there in the middle. Yeah, and Gruber is also the kind of, like the characterization of him early on is so funny to me. Alan Rickman also, gotta say. One of his early roles too. He's amazing in this. Yeah, movie. played by Alan Rickman. Um, R.I.P. But um, he's like he's like telling the executives like what kind of suits they're wearing. He's like he literally has one line where he's like, "I could talk men's fashion and like <laughs> finance all day, but uh, I'm here to like steal or whatever." I mean, he's well researched on Takagi, and that character is also very interesting too. He's not in the movie very long, 
But he has a really interesting quote kind of early on when John's being toured around. I can't remember exactly verbatim, but it's something along the lines of like, you know, after Pearl Harbor, we sold you tape decks or I can't remember what the line is exactly. No, I know what you're talking about. It's like something like when Pearl Harbor didn't work out, we started selling you tape decks or something. Something yeah, like it's that. it's really funny. And like, that's how like he worked his way up to the top. And then Hans has that whole monologue about like where he went to school, where he interned and like kind of like how he built himself up to the top only to kind of get shot in the face. Right. And, to, and Takagi also uh, was interned in Manzanar during the um, during World War II, right, which yeah. is an interesting detail they slip in there. Yeah, there was some pretty deep characterization for some of these uh, characters who aren't, aren't even on screen that long. So, yeah, uh, Takagi, that's his name, right? Yeah. He uh, is is uh, dragged away by Gruber's uh, men. And when he doesn't have the, I guess, passwords they need him to have or... He can't uh, easily wire them all the money. He is uh, shot in the head. Just uh, real quick. So you know these uh, guys mean business. They are heavily armed. Uh, that kind of sets the sets the tone that you know it's going to be like, okay. Also, one thing I will say about this movie is um, I assume it's rated R, but just I was impressed at the amounts of blood. People turn into jelly in this movie. It's awesome. I mean, like, between this and something like Total Recall, like, this was the age of, like, jello squibs for every character in this movie getting shot. Yeah, especially when Takagi gets shot. His, like, the blood just, like, paints the window of His brain just hits the door. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just bring this up now because I might forget later, but when John is uh, kicking out the window with his bloodied feet and just the blood, like, smears on the window... It's pretty uh, visceral stuff. This movie knows when to hide it, though, too. Like, there is later in the movie when Ellis gets shot. I know we're jumping around a lot, but um, when he gets shot, he gets shot off screen. And then there's this shot kind of rotating around Hans in Holly's office. And you see Ellis's body and there's a huge hole in his head. Like, you can see through the hole, but he's out of focus. So it kind of, like, isn't really a focal point in the scene. I think, like, they play around with that a lot for something that's, like, a pretty bloody action movie. They play around with those kind of things, too, to kind of build suspense like he he's just standing in a room with a guy whose head is half blown off and he does not care and he's just pressing on because his whole mission is to just get out of there successfully yeah uh, oh and then right after that uh john faces off with his first uh, a nemesis from gruber's uh, crew uh and they have an exchange where they uh say the guy says there are rules for policemen and then john beats the shit out of him after saying that's what my captain tells me. So this was, I, I felt like a moment where I, I just think you're supposed to think uh, John is cool for committing police brutality. I think it's kind of contextual because he's telling this to someone who he's trying to intimidate. So I, I don't know if I, it is still a kind of a line kind of to the audience as well. It kind of, it's one of those movies where, uh, I can't remember where this quote kind of comes from, but it's the idea of like it plays to the smartest and the dumbest person in the room where like yeah. someone who's just in it for the blood and guts and like him shooting people is going to have a really good time. But someone too, who like kind of can see that for what it is, understands the context that he's, he's saying that to someone who he's trying to get one, like to one up in the scene. I will also say that the, um the other terrorists are like, they reminded me so much of the nihilists from the big Lebowski because <laughs> they all have like the fake German or whatever kind of German they're speaking. All I could think the whole time was like, we want some money, Mr. Lebowski. <laughs> I also like the guy who goes to the candy bars. 
that are just kind of sitting there just to remind the audience that they should go out and get some Twizzlers. We love that. Um, any sort of uh, native advertising. Um, so what happens next? What's the cop's name who's outside? The sergeant? Sergeant Powell. Al, Al Powell. So Powell uh, doesn't notice anything until he's shot at, basically, when he goes to survey the area after John, like, radios 911. I mean, already from the get-go, like, it just shows how incompetent the police are to the point where you call 911 and they don't believe you when you say that someone is shooting up your building. Yeah, and I thought it was funny how nonchalant they sort of, like, took that in the, uh, you know... Uh, wherever the nine one one dispatch, uh, it, they they really didn't seem like phased. Uh, yeah, he's like totally frantic on the call. He's like, I don't care if you need to arrest me for putting in a fake call. Like, get down here now. And then they literally hear like machine gun fire, and they're like, Ah, if you got don't somebody, send a desk jockey, yeah, yeah. <laughs> someone out there, I guess. Like, if anyone's in the area. <laughs> Al is such an interesting character. Like, first of all, you see him walking in buying donuts. Like, that's like five seconds into his character. He's like buying a Twinkie. But I love, like, the one thing in this movie that I think does not really hold up is his arc. And I... I, I Yikes! I gotta say, though, it wasn't as bad as I remember it being. Because he does show remorse. So the whole thing is that... When he's talking to John later in the movie, John's pulling glass out of his feet and he's talking on the radio to Al and Al's like, oh, one time I shot a kid. He had a toy gun. I thought it was real, but I shot him. And ever since I can't bring myself to fire a gun. And that's kind of the gist of what I thought it was. But I then, you know, watching it again, he does show some remorse. He does think maybe they should have done more to him than demote him. But and then by the end of the movie uh carl the last terrorist shows up and he just guns him down and it's this big heroic cinematic moment and it's insane yeah i felt like it was saying he al found himself by like finding a good way to, to kill a guy uh well you know uniformed you know he like redeems was... himself at, for <laughs> killing someone who was innocent by killing someone who was guilty but never <laughs> never is a question like whether or not like the police should be killing people um, if anyone gets their rambo moment in this movie it's that guy i mean like it's crazy that that whole arc is just like that only in the 80s could that happen i think only pre Rodney I mean, King. He shot a like kid. That That's like that, that, you should. You should probably lose your job. You shouldn't just, you know, get, get some desk work. But it was the eighties, right? Yeah. <laughs> different time but that's, that's this is a good point to i guess start talking about like how is this cop with the copaganda elements of this and um i will say i think it is it's sort of more in line with the way that like the wire is copaganda in that they're they is obviously critical of the police as an institution but it does think that they there's a job they should be doing and they're just not necessarily doing that so because we see lots of examples like be it the, the the fbi or the lapd where they are like you said uh matt throwing just a ton of like hardware at the terrorists and it's like and following the book and it's just completely a waste of their time and actually like gets their officers killed um but then we have these examples of like what the cops should be doing where like we have mclean and like his his kind of brotherhood with al powell and um even though, like there's one point where powell says like even though uh even though robinson doesn't support you uh, you know there's other guys here we all support you it sort of it gave me very uh thin blue lines vibes the the dialogue between powell and mclean so 
we go from, uh, you know, Powell uh, realizing that something's actually going on there and he calls for backup. Um, Hans uh, orders his men to uh, blast the RV bulldozer that the LAPD sends in with RPG uh, grenade launchers. Um, and it is at, at that point that John creates a giant explosion in the elevator shaft with C4. <laughs> blows to, up uh, like half the building. <laughs> I know. To, well, to what end was he doing that, Matt? I, 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 I can't remember where that fell in this. Sequence. I'm trying to remember myself, and I've seen this movie a dozen times. He just kind of does it because it's cool. Yeah. I mean, like, I think he does it just to kind of show that he has the C4 so that Hans can feel maybe intimidated into kind of giving up because he shows like, oh, I have I have exactly what you need right now in order to successfully pull off your plan and I'm just going to waste it on your guys. Causing collateral damage, in case anyone was wondering, uh, qualifies as hog behavior in my book. <laughs> <laughs> so we then have this like very by the rules cop, which I think uh, he definitely is there uh, for a distinct purpose for... He's the, the principal from of... the Breakfast Club, right? Oh, I, yeah, I can never I remember so. the actor's name, but he's the principal from the Breakfast Club. And you're referring to which is why it's so funny. You're referring to Deputy Chief uh, of Police Dwayne T. Robinson, who's yes, another foil to like the good cops in this movie. And he's the one like Al's. Al's always saying like, "You shouldn't do that." And he's like, "I'm gonna do that," and then it fucks yeah. up <laughs> every time throughout this movie. Every single time. Um... Oh, uh, briefly, let's talk about the news media in this movie because it's very like local news as TMZ. I mean, at, at one point, I just I have to point this out or else I'll forget the um, the news media uh, like forces their way into the McLean's home to interview their kids by threatening their babysitter with calling like ice or something yeah like deporting her for not yeah, I know, doing an interview i know ice wasn't around at that in the <laughs> 80s but it was the equivalent the equivalent yeah <laughs> deporting if you don't let us interview your the, the, the children you are babysitting i mean what do we think of those the way the news media uh where do they fall in this movie i think i'm getting punched in the face at the end is really great yeah, that was nice. It's like the one level of authority that Holly has throughout this movie is decking this guy in the face, and it's very satisfying, if not a little over underwhelming. Yeah, and the line after yeah. he gets decked, where he's like, "Did you get that?" It's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're they're rightfully skewered. I, I wonder if this is kind of anticipating the, um, I guess in the you know in the nineties and like like local news really became like what's gonna kill your kids today, um, sort of just before clickbait was a term like the the tv equivalent of quick clickbait reporting was very much uh, became in vogue in the 90s i wonder if this is kind of like a commentary on the forces that were leading towards that moment yeah like if it bleeds it leads just that whole idea throughout the you know there's not too much to the news media i mean i like i like how they have like experts on to talk about terrorism and like uh, what do they call it like the helsinki syndrome yeah. <laughs> I, I was thinking i was like do they mean Stockholm syndrome? Am I getting something mixed up? But it is very funny when he says uh, when the when the the anchor is like, "Oh yes, Hel Helsinki, Sweden," and they're like, "Finland, dummy." But <laughs> <laughs> like it's just basically like chasing any lead you can to tell, you know, a very biased story about you know 
pushing your news politics about an event that is currently unfolding. But also, like, what insight would the children possibly be able to give? It's so absurd to the say. The kid can like, barely talk in the first 10 minutes of the movie when uh, when Holly's talking to them. <laughs> so, uh, John at one point says to um, uh, Al and the other cops, quit being part of the problem. <laughs> Which I think was a pretty uh, explicitly, like, trying to, you know, create a distinction between, like, the institutional... Uh, sort of bureaucracy and like the 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 great man, you know, the cowboy as he's uh, characterized a few times. What did we think of this whole like the cop as a cowboy thing? I think it's really interesting that uh, Hans asks him if he's kind of like a um, uh, like a John Wayne type, and he's like, oh, "I'm more partial to Roy Rogers, who's like a the singing cowboy." <laughs> I think it's really, I think that's a really like interesting kind of twist on it, like. They don't try to, it's kind of like the modern cowboy, but not, but kind of like a little antiquated look at that. Yeah, it's something I find interesting about all the cowboy talk. Um, I've been thinking a lot about like Westerns and the the mythos of the cowboy in general. Um, and the reason I'm thinking about that a lot is because I'm playing the PS4 game Ghost of Tsushima, which is about a samurai and uh, during the Mongol invasion of Japan in like the 13th century. And um, s- most Westerns, a lot of them are basically like, some of them are even shot for shot remakes of samurai films, especially ones made by Akira Kurosama. And it got me thinking, cause I was like, it's not so much that the, the Japanese don't think of the samurai like cowboys. We think of cowboys like the samurai and the samurai were like feudal warriors. They're more like what we think of as like knights in, um, you know, the middle ages than cowboys. Really. Um, they're not like these, you know, lone rangers. Usually they're in the course of Kurosawa movies. They're reduced to that because, you know, the other samurai are killed. And that also happens in ghost of Tsushima, the game. But, um, I think that's like that's like a weird insight into the way we think of cowboys is we do think of them like anointed, um, like almost feudal leaders or something. And I, I want I, I thought about that a lot when I was watching McLean um, talk doing all this cowboy talk. It's almost like he is kind of anointed by the circumstance and by his outlook to be the one person who can like a stat who is you know by by virtue of his identity by virtue of like his experience the only person who can stop this terrorist organization and like the the institution of the police is just almost entirely useless against them like at no point does he back down or like stop himself he's like this is something that i have to do not just because my wife or estranged wife is in the building too, but because it is my duty to do so. Yeah, he has like this Bushido warrior code almost. And he's also so, like you said, he thinks a lot and he's supposed to be like so smart. And even just the way he navigates the towers, or the, or the tower by like climbing around, it seems like he's always kind of taking like the most strenuous way to, pl- possible to get places, which I assume is because he wants to avoid the cameras, which obviously um, Theo has access to. But um, yeah, he has this kind of like the cold, calculating like and, and precise mentality of a samurai throughout this yeah i mean like like i mentioned before with the commentary like they really set up the geography so well for his character too like he really understands where he is at a given moment like there's that bit where he runs by that uh topless woman poster and he runs by it again later because like he knows exactly where he is he's setting up everything that he needs to in order to keep himself and everyone else in the building safe 
and kind of lure everyone, all the terrorists, up towards him. No, exactly. And he also uses the landscape of the building to fight against the terrorists, which is extremely samurai shit. But either way, I guess we can continue with the plot before I go too far on this tangent. <laughs> no, I liked it. Um, we we see Ellis, who I don't think we really described like who he is. He is a co-worker of Ho- Holly's. That's her name? Yeah. 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 And he basically is trying to cuck John McClane. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's a little too coked up to realize it, but he definitely yeah, he's is. Doing so much blow. He's he's trying to cuck John McClane in the way that like if you have uh like I don't know, the one friend who's always like, Where are the ladies at? Like he has like that mentality of just like uh, you know, I'm the cool party guy who loves to get laid. <laughs> He definitely is a guy who all the time like does points two thumbs at himself and is like this guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's a guy who would have loved Swingers, the movie Swingers. <laughs> he wished he could be fucking. Vince he would have watched that and been. He would have been like what, like forty something probably when that movie came out. Perfect timing. No, um, there's a, one. He has one line like when the LAPD actually show up in force. Um, he he has this line which I think plays to what you're talking about, Matt, with like the um the criticism of like corporate greed that we find in this where he says never i never thought i'd be happy to hear that sound when he hears the sirens because like he's this like immoral <laughs> man like he's always talking he's always like seems to be talking about like wanting to you know do do like party drugs and like sleep around and stuff like that and he's and uh you know i negotiate multi-million dollar deals for breakfast and shit like that i mean this whole party you don't get a lot of the people at this party at nakatomi but I mean, the whole party is just like people having sex in closets and like doing coke. It's just nonstop oh, decadence. Yeah. No, when Gruber's men come and they just like pull like this like fucking pair of like a man and a woman like out of the an office and they they're just like still like j- like they like basically just like pulled them apart. It's just like yeah. Like I know this is a Fox movie in the '80s. You need your TNA, but like it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it almost reminds me of like a slasher film in that regard. The um, terrorists are almost like you know, like uh, Freddy or Jason, where like you know, obviously in those movies, uh, sexual the people who have sex are the, like the first ones to get killed. It sort of reminded me of that. Right. So Ellis uh, basically offers John to Hans Gruber. He says he can get him. And he proceeds to do just the worst negotiation of all time where uh, he basically <laughs> talks to John on the walkie talkie and pretends that they're like old friends. And uh, I don't know what the hell he thought was going to happen, but he seems like that sort of blind, confident type. So I've seen this movie so many times that I still have no idea what his plan was. He just kind of goes and he's like, I got this and then gets shot three minutes later. <laughs> yeah. Um, him getting his brains blown out was probably more satisfying than Gruber's death at the end of the movie. But um, yeah, he just seems he just wanted to negotiate with the terrorists. He's like, oh, this will this will get us released e- earlier or something. It could go back to the whole cucking thing, too, because he wants to kind of one up how John has been saving the day this whole yeah. movie and nobody else has been doing jack shit. True. So he's like, you know what? It's my time to look heroic. And then he gets shot in the fucking head. <laughs> So then Hans uh, follows by saying he'll shoot someone else uh, if John doesn't, uh, uh, you know, present himself. And uh, John just says, go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Which I was like, all right, that's probably not the best move you could do right now. Especially because I think at this point, Hans might know that A, he's a cop from New York and B, that he is related to Holly. 
It's like towards this point in the movie that they, that connection starts to get made. So he's really played like pretty fast and loose with the cowboy shit, knowing that. No, and I also think it's funny that I don't know if McLean really ever explicitly says that he's a cop, but everyone can just sort of figure it out, which like, again, harkens back to like the, the samurai aspect of like, Oh, just, like a uh, Powell, when he's on the phone, he's like, I think he might be a cop just, just by virtue of the way he talks. He could be a bartender. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Just by like, his, just by certain like ineffable virtue of like his role as like this action here. He's like, you know, this guy's definitely a cop. Like I, I was, I was like, okay, sure. Because again, cops are like these exalted figures in our society apparently so after a gun battle with all of gruber's men uh john does the famous run through glass scene uh you know i forgot just how much the uh i had seen this scene before just the way the blood smears on the floor when he gets out of the you know because they were shooting out all the glass also you know who doesn't who doesn't love uh you know i i it's the kind of scene I love in movies because it feels like, oh, this is like actual movie magic because you 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 see him doing something that's like near impossible, you know. I thought it was a, it was fun fun to watch, even though it's obviously uh, pretty viscerally painful when you like just think about your feet when you're watching that. The movie magic for me is the terrorist who face plants into a glass pane. Oh my <laughs> oh, yeah. god! Probably the most painful looking thing in this entire movie. <laughs> I think he went face first. Yeah, he literally just, like, dives right into it. I think he's the guy who gets his legs turned to jelly as well. Mm. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. He gets, like, I mean, how like, six shots to the legs, and he's just, like, dies. His, his knees legs. just explode, and then he lands face first into glass. Probably the most painful way to die. Yeah, because, yeah, you know, you're hitting the legs. You're still, you're still, you know, your heart's still going for a little bit. Yeah. But, um, so... Yeah, I. That's when uh, Powell reveals that uh, he shot a kid, which we talked about already. But again, uh, I yeah, I didn't. And I, I don't know if we said this, but Powell is like a, is black himself, so it's this extra layer of kind of. I don't know. What, I don't have much we... to say about that, but one thing I find interesting is I don't believe that at any point. I might be wrong because of Theo, but I don't think at any point a white character shoots a black character. I think it's always the other way around. Yeah, because Theo is uh, run over uh, around now in the plot, I guess, by, or not run over, but he's rammed in the limo by Argyle. Right. He's, what are they, so their escape plan was to have an ambulance in the uh, parking garage or something. One of the most infamous goofs in this movie has to be that the truck they pull up in clearly cannot hold an ambulance when they walk out of it. And then at the end of the movie, an ambulance comes out of the truck. It's great. Yeah. Um, so the FBI takes over the scene, which definitely, like, it's funny how you have LAPD incompetence, but the FBI incompetence is shown to be just even uh, greater. It's Agents Johnson and Johnson. I mean, like, they couldn't get more generic than that. It's so funny. Uh, raging Trump supporter Robert Davi plays, um, you know, he does a lot of front-facing videos. He plays one of the uh, feds, <laughs> the big Johnson. No, absolutely. But yeah, the FBI are so bumbling. They they shut down the power to the, like, the entire, like, great, like, 
block that they're on. And this, of course, allows the terrorists to, like, get into the Nakatomi vault, which, I mean, maybe my samurai thing was a bit of a tangent, but they do have, like, samurai armor in the vault, which I thought was funny. I guess I guess because they have to, like, play up that it's a Japanese corporation at times. Um, they, we see, like, some Buddhist, you know, s- sculptures and, like, sh- stuff you'd see at, like, a shrine and then also the samurai gear, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, I guess it kind of harkens back to the subtle, I think in the 80s and 90s, especially uh, people before Japan and had like a serious economic crisis in the 90s people thought japan was just going to utterly like take over the uh, world economy sort of the way that people today fear that china will do it um but of course china will actually do it if you ask me but one thing about cutting the power uh the whole scene leading up to that there's a line where it's like um the guy who would be doing who is working for the power company says that they need authorization and he's like authorization how about the u.s government (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as if reagan's gonna come and be like yeah you gotta do this <laughs> yeah i there's uh definitely something to be said about how like the hierarchies in this movie kind of just uh everyone thinks they're the most powerful person in the room in this movie except for john mcclain he's the one who thinks like he needs to get that power he needs to get that kind of one-upmanship in order to succeed at his goals in this movie whereas everyone else already assumes that they are hot shit and uh, it's at this time that John gets into a big fight with the large Aryan-looking man with the long hair. Um, the most nihilist-looking one of them. <laughs> this is Carl, nihilist. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think he's angry because his brother was killed early on. I think yeah, he's he the, the one with the now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. Which is the, <laughs> one of the best line deliveries. Yeah, so yeah, funny. Rickman reading that was, that was what uh, McLean has written on like the on like the sack that he puts on the the corpse is so funny. He's like, "Now I have a machine gun." Ho ho ho! <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> <laughs> is this before or after uh, he meets with Hans up in, on like that like construction floor and he pretends to be Bill Clay? Right. Yeah, that was weird because I was looking at it like, wait, that's Gruber, right? And then I was like, oh, maybe it's not. Maybe I'm just like a little too stoned or something. <laughs> <laughs> but then he, re- yeah, so Gru- Gruber stumbles upon John and, uh, you know, kind of fools him for a few minutes. But maybe not. Maybe John kind of could tell the whole time. I think he knew the whole time. I mean, he gives him a gun with nothing in it. Like yeah. he he knows what the deal is. And even if he could trust this guy he doesn't want to so i think it's you know at, at least he thinks that this guy could be a threat to me by trying to like you know join up i mean he like hans makes up some lie that he like he's never fired a gun he's like been to a range once he played paintball or something like yeah. that <laughs> this is such a funny line. Mas- <laughs> master accent work by alan rickman there uh, I also think it's I think that scene is interesting because it's almost like a test of honor. Like he's almost like um, I, I agree. I agree with you, Matt. I think that um, he does know the whole time that it's it's probably not, that he there's something's up with this guy. So he gives him, you know, even if he doesn't know exactly that it's Gruber, he gives him the gun that without bullets in it. And um, it's almost like he's like, I, I want to see if you will try me. It's almost like he doesn't want to he doesn't want to like. Um, he could have just offed him like right then and there, but it's, he almost like seems to, again, back to like the Bushido code almost has like this sense of morality of like, no, let's see how, let's see if he's, if he's going to do what I think he's going to do. Uh, and then he does. Of course. Yeah. yeah. But, but it, it, I, I don't know. I feel like at times it's also with the, with the hardware that the, um, 
like there there are times where it's argued that the cops should be more brutal i think almost in this movie where like if we if he had just killed gruber we, the movie would end more quickly and he would have gotten the job done more quickly um and then again when like you know i when i first saw them bring the you know what they call the rv that the lapd has which is like a tank which very prescient because nowadays you know police militarization is this huge issue but I remember seeing that and thinking like, oh, are they going to make a commentary on this? But then the end result is that they almost need, they almost need that hardware because the, uh, the terrorists are, have like RPGs and are able to blow it up. No problem. It's almost like it's not enough. Like, um, the brutality that the police can uh, establish is, is insufficient to meet this foe. So it sort of creates this, like, if you reverse engineer the logic, it creates this argument that they need all this stuff because they are up against like an equally outfitted foe. Yeah. And that especially comes up uh, as we enter the end towards the ending of the movie. Um, Yeah. We have this scene where the FBI uh, guys are in a copter with guns. Like it's like Grand Theft Auto. This scene is so funny. I love the line where he's like, it's just like Saigon. I was just going to say, I know it's so, I was laughing. I had to rewind it because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> it's like if that, if at, if at this point in the movie you're watching it and you don't think it's like on the nose about like how incompetent and like how heroic these people think that they are and are not, that is the line that really seals the deal for me. Like, it's so funny. And then the other guy's like, I was in middle school, dickhead or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> It's also just like how these Vietnam guys, like that's like all they talk about, you know? No, this is like my favorite scene in the movie too. The roof blowing up scene. It's just, it's just awesome from like start to finish. Yeah. So can you describe how the, the sequence of events happens there and then get us to the end of the movie? I mean, I believe McLean is like pleading with them, like to not like send, he's like, he's like, he's clearly freaking out. He's like, Oh no, they got the copter up here and everything. Um, Cause he kind of, I think knows that they're going to blow up there, that the roof is wired to blow. He gets the people, you know, cause at this point they have the C4 back. Yeah. And they had sent the hostages up to the roof. Right. Um, so yeah, the, just the cops just start shooting from this, uh, you know, uh, well, they were shooting at John because John starts like blasting his gun to because he's trying the to get the away. hostages to get yeah to leave the roof to go back downstairs. He's literally firing like a machine gun over their heads to get them to run. <laughs> so, and by this point, uh, Holly is uh, with Gruber because he realizes that she's Holly McClain. <laughs> oh, one more thing I wanted to bring up with the helicopter. I think there's a I don't know who says this line, but someone says like. Oh, we might lose twenty five percent of the hostages, and they're like, "Oh, I can live with that." <laughs> it's kind of funny from there. John, uh, it, you know, runs around to avoid getting shot by these FBI idiots. Uh, all the hostages uh, get down to the uh, lower floors, and John has to uh, jump uh, from the roof, uh, tying a fire hose around his waist uh, to. Uh, prevent himself from uh you know he does what is this called like base jumping basically i think it's funny that fire safety saves him more so than the entire lapd i think that's a really interesting thing like oh that's a good little that's a good little yeah i didn't make that connection until i watched it uh this time but yeah it's just like how all these little like 
elements of the system. I mean, he uses, like, Christmas tape at the end to put the gun on his back. Like, little things that, like, are part of our society, you know, that are, like, you know, federal institutions, the, you know, the post office, the fire de- departments. All these things do more for him in little ways than the LAPD does with a fucking helicopter. Like, it's it's really great. And, I mean, where do we go from there? He 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 gets like suspended down he kicks open the windows and he ends up uh he he finds gruber and and holly well before we get there this the scene where he kicks in the window is so cool again like with the there's a lot of good uh glass breaking and bloody scenes with this like he has to like kind of he has to kick off from the building so he can like get enough momentum to kick through the window in the first place because he's again suspended by a fire hose. And then once he blasts through, he's just this dude is just covered in glass like it's fucking everywhere. And then the um, oh, and the hose is like dragging him yeah, down. The hose like becomes uncoupled from where he grappled it on the top of the roof, so it falls down, but it's still wrapped around his waist. So he has to like quickly like undo it while preventing it from falling. It's on, no, that whole scene where he fli- like with the with the hose is so cool, and it's a really smart way to get him back into the building too, to get him back into the geography that he's familiar with because he's on the roof. They blow the roof. Where is he going to go from there? And so I, it's just a really cool scene. Oh, also when the roof explodes, the FBI copter is just like incinerated, and then there's a great line. I think it's Al who says it. He's like, "We're gonna need some new FBI guys." Yeah. <laughs> I think it's uh, Dwayne Robinson who says that. Yeah, very Jaws. Like yeah. we're gonna need a bigger boat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and but it's like they don't they don't give a fuck about the these guys dying. Like there's no like camaraderie. Like I, I thought that was pretty funny. There's like so it goes. It's part of the job. And there's it's a living. And they don't feel bad for them because they're the they're the hires up. Like when the FBI showed up, they were like, "This is our investigation now," which is you know classic cop movie trope. But um, but yeah, it's, you get the sense that the LAPD kind of resents the FBI for swooping in on their case. So does anything happen uh, before they he John reaches Gruber from here? No, I think once he gets back in the building, he um he goes right for Gruber because I think everyone else is dead at this point. All the other terrorists, except for later, we find out Carl are all dead. Right. So Gruber and John, uh, you know, they, again, they talk about the Cowboys uh, trope and uh, we already talked about that a little bit, but I, uh, I don't know. Is, is, uh, is McLean a cowboy? Is he, is he a renegade like that? Or is he, more of a rule follower i don't know what what is what is a cowboy really i mean i guess you you kind of answered that before with the comparison of samurais but yeah i think he's he doesn't follow the um the decadent rules of like the you know obviously the corporate um you know the corporation and the rich people who work there and he doesn't really follow the institutional rules that the LAPD has like the bureaucracy you know with, also with with the FBI but he does follow he is a rule follower he's like a good cop he follows like again i mean i keep beating the samurai thing to death but he has like this this uh inner like code of morality and like martial you know honor that he adheres to and that's what and and powell also adheres to this too because i think that's 
that's how he can explain the fact that he definitely does feel very guilty about having shot a child earlier in his career. But then when he's given the chance, um, when he's, you know, called upon, honestly, like almost in, in the circumstance anointed to kill the last terrorist who shows up, um, he does it without hesitation and it redeems him. Like there is like, he's a rule follower. Powell and McLean are both rule followers, but they don't follow the, like the decadent or uh, bureaucratic rules of the other institutions in this film. I think it kind of comes with the idea of like thinking first, shooting later, but ultimately you still shoot. Right. So yeah, and I think also with that cowboy element, like we can go back a little bit to the decadence of the '80s, and it's like how people like Ellis see themselves as the cowboys of the modern era, whereas you know the movie's making very clear that no, that's not really being you know that's not really having a code of honor. That's just you know being kind of like it's like an individualist kind of take on it, whereas. John McClane is serving and protecting. He's doing his job. Yeah. Uh, Ellis would think that Jordan Belfort in Wolf of Wall Street was like the hero <laughs> of the film. He would listen to his podcast and take notes. Uh, I'm pretty sure he has a podcast, Jordan Belfort. Um, all right. So, yeah. Uh, Matt, describe for me uh, how Gruber is taken down. Sure. So, if I remember right, John has a gun taped to his back and they're like both laughing over him saying you be K.A. motherfucker earlier and he catches him off guard. There's another guy there actually. I think he was the guy who shot the security guard who is still there. And John whips the gun out, shoots both of them and then Hans stumbles out the window but he's still holding on to Holly. And so it's like John goes after them. So it's the three of them dangling out of the window. And then so earlier in the movie, Holly is gifted a Rolex and so uh, Hans Gruber is holding onto this Rolex and they unclasp it. And that's what gets him to kind of like fall out of the window and he plummets to his death. And I mean, his reaction is so great. And it's very like you wouldn't get this in a movie today because they genuinely did drop him like 50 feet or something like that onto a big like airbag. So you oh, really see did? The... that was actually his, his real expression. Yeah, I think it's either a. It's a matte painting or it's a blue screen. I don't know exactly what they did for the backdrop, but they genuinely did drop him just to get that effect of like the air and like the gravity on his face. And they, I think that was the first take. They told him they were going to drop him on three or something like that. And they dropped him on two so that he had a genuine look of like, oh shit on my face. So <laughs> yeah. And um, his, yeah, his move, the, the, the slow motion watching his face move from like, cool assured terrorist the way he's been this whole movie to like oh shit i'm actually gonna die is is really cool it's the first time in the entire movie that he realizes that he's lost yeah like he's uh lost that uh self-assuredness that has defined his character that he planned for everything except falling out of the window yeah except corporate greed <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think the concept of greed and the way it works in this film is interesting because I think they have um, we're the characterization of Gruber is that he's a he's a separatist from like a terrorist group called the Volksfrei, which translates to like people free in German. Just not that well fleshed out, but um, he. He says at one point, like, this company has doesn't know how to use power. They've just been doing greed. I'm going to show them how to use their power. But at the end of the day, all we see them really doing is, like, looting the company. And, um, the, and then at the end, like, the Rolex being so on the nose as, like, this symbol of, like, he won't 
he he like is clutching almost the Rolex, and that's what like leads him to fall. Uh, there's like there is this kind of weird commentary on that. He says that he's above the he's criticizing the greed of the corporation, but at the end of the day, it seems like he's at least as greedy as they are. He just has a different way of obtaining the spoils. I mean, Holly even calls him a common thief, and he's like, "No, I'm an exceptional thief." Yeah, yeah. Because he has everything planned out except for how to actually get out. And I there's one thing with his character that I really like where he kind of leads everyone on a wild goose chase over like he wants them to free these political terrorists or something like that or like political prisoners. And he's like, uh, I, he's like, well, who's that? And he's like, I read about them in Time magazine. So he's like, <laughs> he, he has no affiliation with these like political dissidents. He's like demanding be freed. <laughs> Yeah, at first I was like, damn, this guy's doing some cool shit. <laughs> and it's like, oh, no, he just he doesn't give a fuck. He's just trying to create chaos. And, he saw uh, it in the media, in the news somewhere. I mean, that's also like kind of a statement on the kind of people who watch these movies. And I think that's something that I want to talk about at some point, too, is like the kind of people who watch this movie and the lessons that they learn from it. I mean, like, you know, does someone watch this movie and want to become a cop? What kind of cop do they want to become? Well, that's that's a great question. Um, yeah, I have to say, I think it would make you want to be the cop who uses his gun, because I mean, like like we like we see in the last scene, uh, uh, Al is, uh, I mean, is finally redeemed because um, Carl, the Aryan long-haired uh, guy who. John uh, fought and uh, strangled him with a bunch of chains. Like, I mean, he looks pretty dead, but he emerges from the building ready to just like blast John away. And uh, he is killed by Powell. And it's this this shot where it's like he uh, shoots the gun and it like zoom, it's, it uh, gets out of focus. And, it's, and you see the barrel, and then it focuses into him like a rack focus. Yeah, exactly. So And it's like a mystery, like, who did it? And it's like, obviously, like, how <laughs> shot this guy. No, it's sort of like a heroic scene. It, it reminds me of like when, when Han Solo like saves Luke Skywalker at the end of like the first Star <laughs> exactly. Wars. It's like, you're supposed to cheer for this. And I mean, music's a huge element of this movie, and this is definitely an example of like the very heroic music being used. Uh, music in this movie is great. I love Ode to Joy when the vaults open up and everything like that. Like, it's very like it treats every character's victories very triumphantly, even if they are not good characters or good people. Like it, it allows you to even. This is kind of going back to the commentary too where it kind of allows even the villains to kind of have people rooting for them in a way. Like, you're kind of satisfied when you see that his plan actually did work and nobody was able to stop him until the very end of the movie. Yeah, it's kind of cool to watch something where the villains are kind of ruthlessly efficient, you know? it's. Uh, I was also just wondering while watching this, I was like, I haven't seen, like, an action movie with this much, like... it. it I will say, I know there's a lot of violence in this movie, but it, it definitely didn't, it, it seemed consequential. Uh, and it, it didn't seem like they were just like piling up bodies for no reason. I uh, I think like the deaths uh, for the most part had a, had a purpose. It's very reflexive and there's not enough characters in the movie because of the setting of the movie to actually have like endless goons running in to get shot. It's kind of like you have... I think it's like 10 terrorists total, I think, in the movie. And that's it. Those are the people who are going to get killed. And they're only getting killed because they are there to be killed. They're not like... It's not like 
John McClane is seeking them out to kill them. He is he is doing it kind of defensively throughout the movie. Yeah. Um, when I, I watched this with my wife when I recently rewatched it, and she was like, if they made this movie today, then like the death toll would just be so much higher. It'd be like Rambo. It'd be, you know, it'd be, they'd leave the building and then they'd go to another place where he shoots 50 more people. That happens in the third movie, actually. I, think, I was going to ask, Matt, you must have seen the sequels. Like, I've seen all of them. And yeah, I, what do they do? So the not, second, not in a, yeah, not in like a, you know, uh, you don't have to do the whole plot of each. Sure, but just yeah, like, yeah. What, what, what's the, what sense do you get of those when you watch them? I mean, this kind of a diminishing returns thing, although I do really like the third one. Um, the second one's in an airport, basically the same movie over again. Um, a little more self-serious, I think, but basically the same movie. It's, it's, it's a, if you like the first one, you like the second one. The third one kind of takes a twist. So it's back in New York. He, they're, it's like Hans Gruber's brother is just blowing up New York essentially to try to break into the federal reserve. And it's him and Sam Jackson have to stop him. And that movie is wild because a huge plot element of that movie is focused around the N word because he has to wear a sign that has it on it in Harlem. And that's like a whole element that like he's like John McClane is made to do that by Hans Gruber's brother in order to like distract like, it's just, like, an insane scenario in that movie. It, that's one thing God. that, like, like you watch it again, it's like, holy shit, that's something that happened in 1995 in cinemas nationwide. You couldn't do that today, huh? No, and then the, the last two joking. are pieces of shit. I mean, like, four and five are not good. I think the fifth one, he goes to, like, Chernobyl or something. <laughs> it's fucking stupid. Was that the one with Justin Long? That was four. That was the one where it's, like, a tech thriller that... Something very interesting about the Die Hard movies... Um, the first one is based on a book called Nothing Lasts Forever, and it's a sequel to, I think it's called The Detective, and it was a Frank Sinatra movie they made out of this book, and so they, the options were that, like, there was some kind of contractual reason for Frank Sinatra to get first dibs on the John McClane character in 1988, and that just wasn't (laughs) going to happen. But every movie after that, except for, I think, the last one, is based on something else. Like, two is based on another book. The third one is based on, like, I think it's like a Lethal Weapon script or something like that. That got turned into a Die Hard movie. The fourth one's based on, like, an article about, like, cyber terrorism or something. I mean, all these movies come from other sources, but still manage to have, like, this very original, unique take on their genres, up until at least, I, I would say, the third one, and then it's just kind of garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, uh, that's that's interesting, because I was wondering, like, kind of what direction they, they went in, but uh, what was, what? how long ago did the last, most recent one come out? I think it was 2013, so about seven years ago, and these movies are done. I've heard some rumblings now that disney boss box i don't think this is gonna happen but i've heard some rumblings about them doing like young john mcclane or like his like first mission as a cop or something like that i don't know what that actually would look like it would probably look like one of the later movies in the series where he's just shooting people mindlessly the problem i think with this franchise ends up being that so many imitators came from them and some of them I wouldn't say we're better than the first one, but we're better than the sequels. Like, Speed is a really good example. Yeah, right. Like, that whole thing that where they were like, it's Die Hard on a... On under a, Siege. On a, on it's a, Die on Hard a on a cruise ship. Yeah. Or, like, Die Hard on a bus. Die Hard in this. Die Hard on a submarine. Like, they did every version of that. And some of them were good enough that it kind of stole the thunder from something like 
the Die Hard franchise. So they went back to doing like different things where he's like, oh, he's going to go, uh, you know, tour the whole country now. But then it defeats the purpose of what Die Hard is. And so it kind of waters it down. I will say, though, three is worth watching, if only for there's a lot of good chemistry with Bruce Willis and Samuel Jackson in that movie. That's very entertaining to watch. But it, do, it doesn't feel like a diehard movie other than the characterization of McLean as this kind of like burnt out, like he's tired of having to save the day so much and he just still reluctantly feels the urge to do it. Yeah, the idea of a prequel movie to Die Hard sounds atrocious to me, just like McLean doing police brutality in like New York somewhere. In the crack in the era. In the mid-80s. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not interested. Yeah. <laughs> Planting crack on a young uh, child. Um, <laughs> no, but um, did we miss anything from the end of the movie? I mean... Really, the only I, thing, like, yeah, Holly yeah. punches out the news reporter. One detail that I, I didn't notice until now is that, like, the um, there's a bunch of company paperwork that's falling like snow while they play Let It Snow, which I think is a really, like, little nice touch about, you know that as um john mctiernan mentions on the commentary like the kind of destruction of corporatization i think that's a nice little detail uh yeah they kind of just get in the limo argyle says like if this is christmas i gotta be here for new year's and then they kind of just ride off yeah that was a great line and uh what what was it let it snow yeah yeah, let it yeah. Snow playing out as, over the credits uh yeah i i, I you know it is a hacky thing, but yes, it's a Christmas movie. Yeah, yes, it, it, it you 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 have a lot of Christmas elements in this. It's not a movie directly about Christmas, but it's certainly a Christmas movie. I mean, I I know that's like a kind of silly argument to be having in the year twenty twenty, but <laughs> I think it's pretty definitive at this point. It has been litigated. Yes, thirty two um, years. <laughs> um. Yeah, any, anything else that we want to tie in? I know Matt Matt brought up that question before, so uh, Sam, I, I want to put this to you. Like, yeah, is this a you know, is this the movie that encourages people to become a cop? Is it is it kind of, you know, to what degree does it glorify uh, the wrong uh, type of uh, behavior? It's sort of I don't know. If, it sort of glorifies a certain kind of cop. Like I said before, I mean the. The chemistry between Powell and McLean is so has so many lines that I was just like, I got to write that down. Um, obviously, I mentioned how initially Powell's like, I think this guy's a cop. Just uh, the reason he thinks that is because um, is because McLean tells him on the phone, like, I can tell these guys have fake IDs, but they're really high end fake IDs. And uh, I think even like Robinson's like, well, that could be anything. He could be a bartender. <laughs> but um, there is this like there is this unspoken idea that there's like this this mental link or something between like good cops that is and and of course I mean it does I don't know if it like is telling people that they uh, should go and become you know everyone wants to be an action hero I don't know if like because McLean is like the hero of the movie it's telling people necessarily to go join the police and obviously there are elements of it that are critical to it critical of the institution of the police that would maybe serve as an argument against telling people to become a cop. But it does seem to tell people that there is some kind of honor in being a good cop, that there is, that it confers these kinds of, uh, you know, almost, 
I don't want to say supernatural, but like superhuman almost abilities, like being able to run on like his dedication to being a good cop seems to be allowing him to like run on glass. It seems to be allowing him to like do do all these stunts that you wouldn't necessarily expect like a New York City like cop to be able to do. I don't know. Like, is this what they're doing on a daily basis? Like, no. But it's we seem to like believe that because he has this background um, that he it, it has like it affects his. I don't know, like his demeanor and his abilities to this degree that he's able to do these things. So there's something there. I don't know if it's as overt as like join the police. There are definitely movies that are more overt on that line, but there it does act like there's this kind of exalted ability that comes with becoming a police officer. I think more so than this being a movie about, oh, the police are great, the police are cool, because there are so many elements that work against that. I think this is, and Dan, I mentioned this to you before we recorded it, I think this is the ultimate good guy with a gun movie, more so than it is become a cop movie. Especially because he's like, you know, the, the movie is like, the iconic image is like Bruce Willis. Like, he doesn't he doesn't look like a cop, really. He looks too, like... I mean, he's in, a, he's in a dirty tank the whole movie. He looks like he's barefoot. Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's not right. It's it's not like he's in uniform, which doesn't it's, doesn't really matter. But it's like I don't know. It, it, it's it's complex because I feel like there are elements of it where it, it it's least charitable interpretation uh, that uh, a perhaps dumb guy could get from this would be like. I can't wait to just like blow away any thugs, you know, fucking head. I think what helps this is that, as you mentioned, like he's wearing a dirty tank top this whole movie. He doesn't look like a quote unquote cop. If this was a boy in blue doing this entire movie, it's a much different movie than it is with this vulnerable. Like, I mean, it's Bruce Willis who had, you know, only done comedy up to this point. If you're going to see this movie in 88, like you're you're seeing this vulnerable weak comedian essentially try to save the a building from terrorists versus a guy who is who looks like sounds like etc a cop that's a good point he does sort of have to like shed the uniform metaphorically and physically in order to like do the good work so you're right it may be more of a good guy with a gun kind of movie but i would wager that a lot of people who buy into good guy with a gun theory would strongly disagree with me if i said that we should disarm the police so it does kind of feed into that feedback loop there yeah so uh final thoughts uh on on this movie or uh, do we have more to go on i mean i i i think Okay, here, here's a question. Why is it a good quarantine movie? Because I felt like the closed spaces, like John crawling through the air vent, I was like, this is a quarantine movie. It's a lot of constricted uh, spaces. Uh, I don't know. And you're quarantined in this office building in this movie, basically. So uh, uh, I'll start with uh, Matt. Why do you think this is a quarantine movie? It was good for our quarantine nights at the Quarren Cinema series on Hog Planet. So what do you think? I mean, you definitely touched on the idea that like you're stuck in one place, but it's also the idea that like, you know, when you're in one place for long enough, whether it's a building, a room, you get so familiar with your surroundings. And that's something that kind of happens throughout the movie with John McClane. Like he isn't familiar with that kind of world that he's stepping into, but by the end of the movie, he knows it inside and out enough to really use it to his advantage. And also, I mean, unrelated, but the idea that uh, one could be stuck at work 
for that long would drive me insane. <laughs> Even if it was for me being held at gunpoint by terrorists, it would be just too much to handle. Is a good argument for uh, work from home and uh, socially distanced happy hours or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Christmas parties on Zoom. Yeah, yeah no, no, no more work, work Christmas parties. That's that's my, that's my determination. They're just not safe. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I love this movie. I think it's like a real gold standard for action cinema just on a general technical level. And also I think there's a lot to it that is hard to kind of glance at first viewing. Cause you, a lot of people hear about this movie their whole lives, especially cause it's now 32 years old or so. And uh, a lot of people hear about this movie and if they haven't seen it, they think like, Oh, it's just one of those dumb action movies from the eighties that like doesn't hold up. It's just a guy shooting everyone. And when you watch it, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Whereas if you go back to, you know, a first blood part two or a commando, like those are fun movies. I love watching movies like that. But at the end of the day, there's just not a lot of meat on those bones compared to something like Die Hard, where there's a lot of little intricacies that actually make it a substantial take. I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a flat out satire, like a Paul Verhoeven kind of movie would be. If Paul Verhoeven made this movie, it'd be completely different. But the idea that like there's actually something to think about with this movie versus a lot of movies of its ilk kind of sets the bar so high. And then they made the other Die Hard movies, which as I talked about, you know, kind of questionable for the most part. Yeah. Um, Sam, what are your final thoughts here? No, I think we did it. I think we uh, covered the plot and the themes and how it kind of works on these different levels. And I think that all elevates, elevates it beyond, uh, like Matt was saying, you know, some of the more comparable action movies that are more just purely about action. There's like a little bit more going on with this one. And uh, to close out, Matt, do you any other like weird little things from the commentary that were you know that jumped out? Uh, I'll, I'll take a look through my notes real quick. I mean, there was a lot of about the because it was the production designer who was doing the commentary with John McTiernan, or I think it was like they recorded them separately and they kind of mashed them together. So it was a lot about the kind of design and kind of the geography of the space. One thing from the very beginning that I thought was interesting, like flat out. At the very beginning of the commentary, John McTiernan said he didn't want to make the movie because he was afraid of making a movie about terrorism and making it so, you know, so bleak and dark and that he was able to kind of take that and make it more of a heist movie. And that's what made it so appealing to him. And then he goes on a little bit about, I think a little later in the movie, he talks about um, the idea of having them be german terrorists or european terrorists versus having like the standard for those action movies in the 80s middle eastern terrorists and how he didn't really want to politicize anything i mean to the point where as we mentioned hans gruber is making this whole thing of political demands and it really doesn't amount to anything ultimately end of the day it's just a heist movie and i think that making it so apolitical in that regard i think is really smart and allows it to hold up a lot better than the standard just you know middle eastern terrorist movies that have been that were popular around that time i mean even in the 90s you got like you know true lies had that kind of trope to it too like even as late as that it was still kind of an element of it to villainize these people versus it's just like you know a bunch of european guys you know, that is really interesting that you bring that up. I didn't consider that, like, part of the reason why this movie is so effective is because you don't get bogged down in sort of, like, you know, yeah, political demands or, like, the race of the uh, of the villains. And, uh, yeah, that, that 
that was uh, an important choice that I think made the movie a lot better. Um, it's very clear just... cut what everyone wants in this movie. I mean, it's, there's nothing to really bog it down in that way. It's very, it's a long movie. It's a dense movie in terms of what goes on in it. But at the end of the day, it's very simple A to B. You understand everyone's motives. Yeah, and at the end of the at the end of the movie, you you get a sense that like. I don't know. It's very Hollywood, right? It's like everything kind of falls into place, but how they get there is certainly, uh, yeah, it, it diverted from, I guess, a lot of 80s action tropes, but yeah, I don't know. Was there any Was there any other insights from the commentary about the stunts or, you know, any of the like technical stuff? Uh, I guess, well, actually, one shot that I will talk about that I thought was really interesting that I never thought about that, because I love listening to commentaries for movies I've seen a bunch of times because you end up catching things that you never would have even thought about. And one of those is, I talked earlier about John McClane being this kind of, like, thinking before he acts kind of cop. And there's one shot early on that the director talks about as kind of a, quote-unquote, European shot versus an American, how an American filmmaker would do it where he's uh john is up on that construction floor and he's thinking about what he needs to do next before they come up and start shooting at him and the camera moves it stays on him static for a second and then it kind of moves to center him almost as if he's kind of like centering and like refocusing his brain on what he needs to achieve next and i think that's something that plays into the idea of him being a planner and him being like hans and his team where there are a lot of very similar camera movements whereas the camera kind of plays with um, with the FBI and the LAPD, kind of like making them look heroic. And then as soon as something goes wrong, it kind of like gets very flat and like almost like looks down on them a little bit. Yeah, it's really interesting because, yeah, it's that kind of stuff you don't know. Yeah, like you said, you don't notice on first watch. And then it's like, oh, OK, there's like intentions behind these things. Yeah, that's I, I enjoy director director's commentaries, too. It's just it's it's always a great way to just. I don't know, find out more shit about something you like. And that's why, to be honest with you, I I have Blu-rays still. I think it's nice to have them. I love physical media. I mean, you can't lose that to streaming rights. I mean, every day you lose a movie from streaming, and then one day those movies are gone. I mean, look at Netflix. They're finally striking deals with Criterion and actually putting out their Blu-rays and DVDs and stuff for some of their more popular movies. But there's some movies on there that people are going to want to rewatch one day, and maybe Netflix won't be there. You know, maybe it will, but maybe it won't. And that's kind of like, you know, any streaming media. I mean, Blu-rays is one thing, too, because you could always, they could always patch some kind of firmware that prevents you from watching it without having to buy a new copy or some bullshit like that. But generally speaking, like, if you keep your stuff offline, those will last a very long time compared to trying to rewatch a movie that disappeared off of Netflix or Amazon or wherever it was hosted for the very brief amount of time that it was. And you also yeah. get all the bonus stuff. I mean, you don't really get that on any other streaming services for the most part. No, they never include that stuff. And it's like, uh, I don't know. I feel like there's this tendency with streaming to make you want to just like watch like as much stuff as possible and just pile it on and just keep keep watching and keep watching. The whole Netflix watching. model of just like, you know, you can't even watch the damn credits anything because it'll just go right to the next <laughs> thing. Because any minute you're spent not thinking about what you want to watch next is a minute wasted. Sometimes I find myself like just like starting something again just to like watch part of the credits because mm -hmm. like there was still something going on or just like I wanted to see like who the cast was. Um, just some Netflix gripes for you uh, at the end of the episode. 
Hey, I watched I watched Die Hard on a nice Blu-ray. It was great, very crisp. I mean, I don't want to advertise Blu-ray or anything, but it's it's nice to have the physical media for sure. I, uh, as a simpleton, watched it on HBO Max. Same <laughs> HBO Max. Um, that is not an ad. I, it's it's uh, it's a service that I I use to watch this movie. Wish it was an ad. Get uh, at us. Yeah. Hey, me. Um, all right, uh, let's wrap it up. Uh, Matt, you have a podcast. Why don't you plug it here? I do. We've been on hiatus for a bit, but I have a podcast called Co-Pilots with uh, Cash Orlin. And we basically, we talk about pilots to TV shows that only lasted a season or like memorably terrible. And I know you wanted me to talk about um, a few of the shows that we did that had to do with cops. Oh, yeah. I, I asked if there were any uh, that stood out that you'd covered. So one that we definitely did was Fish Police, which was more of a detective show. It's like a cartoon that's like kind of for adults, kind of not. I don't remember much about it in terms of the details, but it was pretty embarrassing to watch. It was like one of those kind of like they're trying to be Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but it's underwater with fish. It was not good. Um, the other one, which is extremely memorable, and I highly recommend anyone who can find this to watch it. I did this one, uh, this episode with a friend of mine, Kate Brenner. Uh, it's called Cop Rock. It's from the early 90s. Basically, they took like a police procedural show and they made it into like a musical with Randy Newman songs. Oh. And it's, it is it, in one minute, right? In one minute, they'll be like interrogating a suspect and practically waterboarding the guy. And then the next scene, they'll be like singing about how someone's guilty or not guilty in court. It's it is a must watch. It is so great. And I am upset that it isn't a show that still airs to this day. <laughs> Yeah, where'd that air? Uh, was that an HBO title? That sounds like an NBC or a Fox, maybe. It, it was definitely network television. It was like right, I want to say right before NYPD Blue became big. So they kind of just missed it. If they waited a couple years, this could have been a huge show. Yeah, it's hard to like bomb a police procedural. You know, it's pretty much like, you know, what you have to do is pretty much laid out for you. I mean, that's what some networks exist on. It's just CSI, NCIS, etc. So as uh, filming starts again in New York, uh, I think like the only media we're going to have is like new stuff. It's just like these cop shows like Blue Bloods. I want to see more shows that are just archive footage because I've noticed that with commercials lately that it's very clearly like Shutterstock shit in all these commercials because they can't go out and film anything. So I want to see a whole show that's made of all this archive footage somehow. I don't care how they do it. And like they film the rest on a green screen with like Dean Cain or like some random other person, <laughs> some random older actors to do this like cop drama. <laughs> yeah, um... I don't know. I've been uh, I've been wondering just, uh, I, you know, if our media landscape is uh, going to return uh, to, uh, you know, because I feel like they're just going to run out of shit at a certain point and they're already starting to. Well, with movies, at least they're pushing so much of it, which is a smart move, but also like it's going to be so jam packed these next couple of years once theaters do start reopening that it's going to be so like. I I could go on for a very long time about the kind of yeah. the death of the cinema and like the idea that like this is probably the worst time for theaters to be closed because this is already at the kind of peak of the only movies people are going to see in theaters are these huge blockbusters and everything else is kind of getting 
you know, put onto streaming and Netflixes of the world. So it coming back and just being blockbuster after blockbuster, I hope is kind of a revival of the cinema and will maybe make people want to, you know, go out and see something that isn't a Tenet or a, uh, or a Marvel movie or something, go out and see something. I, I read somewhere that they're doing a few indie releases to like drive-ins that are going to be concurrent with video on demand, which I know that they've been like, they've been trying to do the VOD at like a premium price. So I wonder if they would do that with like some of their indie titles and see how that, how much that sticks instead of showing like old movies. Cause I've been trying to find drive-ins near me. There've been a couple that popped up and they're all like older movies. And I think that's a cool experience, but ultimately I want new content. I mean, I can only watch, uh, E.T. so many times. Yeah, I, I went to a drive-in recently, actually. Uh, it's like, it was like an hour and a half outside of uh, D.C. where I live. And um, the they were playing Empire Strikes Back and Black Panther on one screen. And on the other screen, uh, I forget the second film, but the first one was Shrek. So I kept trolling my <laughs> wife by switching. I was reading that the top ten box office for the last like three months has been all older movies. And it's just really? like wild. <laughs> it's, it kind of reminds me of the era where it's like, you know, all these remakes are coming out. So it feels like the 90s. Like, oh, the Lion King's out. Ghost in the Shell is out. But it's like actually these older movies. It's like, oh, Empire Strikes Back is the number one movie for the first time. I'm in 35 years yeah. or something like that. <laughs> no, but I kept trolling my wife by switching when we were watching Empire, switching the radio to the other screen so it would play like some shit from Shrek. <laughs> like <laughs> some of Donkey's best antics. The, the, holly, um, the Rufus Wainwright Hallelujah. <laughs> as he gets out of the Rancor pit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's wrap it up. Uh, thanks for coming on, Matt. Uh, you're a scholar of Die Hard. Uh, you have oh, the of course. I mean, you, you were able to provide uh, quite a bit of insights. Today, yeah, crucial Ryan. expertise for us on this. <laughs> hey, anytime. I'm, I love talking about movies. So anytime you guys want to cover another one of these kind of cop movies, especially what I do look forward to the ones that don't hold up as well as this movie does. I think that's something that's really interesting to think about. Just like, how does this movie that I've seen 20 times kind of fail in some ways when you look at it in a fresh lens? So that's, I, yeah, I'm down for any of these. But yeah, we'll we'll definitely do more uh, with you, Matt, because uh, you know this is this is a lot of fun. For uh, sure, thanks for having me. Oh, anytime, uh, Sam. Uh, we have a Patreon now where people can get what uh, if they subscribe. Subscribe at Patreon.com/slash/HogPlanet. Get access to post-game, uh, you know, extended interviews that go on longer. You can get access to one bonus episode a month, and we'll be doing more as we build it up. Uh, Dan, at certain levels, Dan will send you original art. There's a whole bunch of fun stuff you can gain access to at patreon.com slash hogplanet. Um, definitely also follow hogplanet on all the social media at hogplanet podcast on Instagram at hogplanet on Twitter, follow Dan at speventacular on Twitter. And you can follow me on Twitter at Wagstank. I think that's all the plugs. So uh, once again, Matt, uh, we appreciate your uh, expertise on the subject of Die Hard. Um, you if you guys want to talk Die Hards two through five, I'm game two. So all right, let's uh, buckle yeah, up. No, all uh, the Gavones <laughs> should follow uh, should follow Copilot's podcast and Matt's stuff uh, as well. If you're interested in this sort of stuff as well. Absolutely. Um, so uh, finally, this is Hog Planet.